Thank you so much for reading Colin and reading so well. Should be expected, it's his job. He's a brilliant voice actor. Not actor, professional. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'd be grateful if we kept our Bibles open at page 910, and we will be looking at that passage. We pray together. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We pray, our Father, that by your Spirit, through your Word this morning, you would be at work in our hearts. Give us deep and lasting certainty that Jesus is your enthroned King and Lord, that in him we have the forgiveness of sins, and that to him we belong. And we ask it for his glory's sake. Amen. I wonder if you can tell me who wrote this tweet in 2018. A top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. Anybody? Don't be shy. Greta, well done. I think, who is that? I can't see, well done. Yes, Greta Thunberg wrote this tweet in June 2018. Adrian was right. She was quoting James Anderson, a professor of atmospheric chemistry at Harvard University. It has subsequently been deleted. It was a point of mockery by many, though in fairness to Greta, she wasn't saying that the world would end in five years, that is 2023, but rather that if there wasn't a change to fossil fuels within five years, that humanity would be wiped out. I do not want to get into the whole issue of climate change, you'll be glad to hear, and the different views on it. There is great debate, but the debate is about the end of the world. Has it come? Will it come? Or is it all just alarmism? The end of the world. May I say that the end of the world has begun. But both Greta or those on the other side are wrong in understanding when that happened. Because according to the Scriptures, according to the Apostle Peter, according to what we have in front of us this morning, the world has ended or begun to end 2,000 years ago. We are in the middle of a speech by the Apostle Peter who is explaining the extraordinary event of people speaking in languages understood by those who have come from the far corners of the world to Jerusalem. These Galilean disciples and others proclaiming the mighty works of God in a way which is supernatural. You might remember if you were here last week that the explanation of those visitors is on the one hand, they must be drunk. And on the other hand, well, what's going on? And Peter stands up and begins to explain that what we are seeing is the signal of the end of this world. And what he will go on to explain 
is that the pouring out of God's Spirit is the evidence that we are in the last days, chapter 2, verse 17. And inextricably connected with that is the enthronement of God's King and Judge. For the pouring out of the Spirit is His gift into the world and signals that He will soon return to bring about His final kingdom. God's purpose for us this morning in this passage is that we would, well, do as Peter says in verse 36, that we would know for certain, and that's a big theme in Luke and Acts, certainty, absolute reassurance, that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, the Messiah, the King, this Jesus whom you crucified. My prayer and the aim of this passage is that we would be certain that God has indeed raised Jesus to life, enthroned now in heaven, having poured out His Spirit, and it is proven, one, by the Scriptures. Not an accident, not out of the blue. Proven by the Scriptures, but also, secondly, proven by the Spirit. The evidence of God's Spirit at work in and amongst us, even this morning. The evidence that Jesus is sitting on His throne. So first, be certain that God has raised Jesus as Lord and King, first, proven by the Scriptures. We head up to Queensland on holidays most of the time, and my wife's favourite activity, well, every holiday, she will begin a jigsaw puzzle. She has a lot of patience, unlike me, sometimes 200 pieces, 300 pieces, 400 pieces, she's very good at it, normally takes most of the holiday. We got to the very end, well, she got to the very end, but shock horror, there was a missing piece. And we went high and low under carpets, etc. There were accusations of theft and all sorts of things. One piece to be found that fits and makes sense of the jigsaw puzzle. The Old Testament is like that great big jigsaw piece puzzle, rather, waiting for the fitting piece, waiting for the shape of the Messiah, the King, the one who the Lord would raise to rule over His people, establish justice, and put down all of His enemies and bring His eternal kingdom, the age of the Spirit, of life flooding into this world. And what Peter does in this speech is cite two passages of the Old Testament Scriptures, Psalm 16, beginning in verse 25, and Psalm 110 in verse 34. Both of them giving us the shape into which Jesus fits as the perfect match. The coming of Jesus as King is no surprise, the Bible says, time and time again. Verse 23 it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God wasn't surprised when His Son was crucified. He didn't throw up His arms and say, oh my goodness, what has happened? No, no. Precisely according to His plan, as outlined for us in the Scriptures. This is just as Jesus said at the, Luke, at the end of Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, verse 44. 
Don't turn to it. I'm going to read what Jesus says to his disciples, the risen Jesus. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that is the three parts of the Old Testament scriptures, must be, it is necessary, absolutely has to be fulfilled. And then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, and this is what is to be fulfilled, thus it is written, thus the scriptures say, that the Christ, that is the one who would come as God's king, should suffer and on the third day rise again. So the first thing the scripture said about the Christ is that he would suffer and be raised, and this is what Peter is explaining is exactly what has happened. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, that is that ordinary bloke from an ordinary town, Jesus, his first name, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. That is to say, everybody knew what Jesus did at the time. Read Josephus, the Roman historian. He makes it very plain that Jesus did these extraordinary things. There's no doubt about that at all. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about the way that Jesus' opponents even can't deny what Jesus has done. There's an episode in Luke's Gospel with a woman who's been crippled for 18 years, bent over backwards, and with a word, Jesus heals her. And listen to what the synagogue ruler says. He says, there are six days on which to work. Come on one of those days and be healed, not the Sabbath. Do you notice the nature of the opposition? Don't do what you're doing, but no doubt that he did what he did. No doubt at all in the ancient world, in the recordings of those outside of the Bible, that Jesus did do these mighty works. Verse 22, just as you yourselves know, you from the far reaches of the empire, from Crete and Rome, and Parthia and the other places listed that I momentarily forget all across the empire. <laughs> You've heard about it. It was front page news. No doubt about that. Verse 23, he was crucified just as was promised according to the definite plan of God. And verse 24, God raised this man up from the dead, just as people would have heard and known. I wonder if you've heard of a man called Pincus Lapide. He's a Jewish historian. He's died now. This is what he said. I accept the resurrection of Jesus, not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as an historical event. The surprising thing is that Pincus Lapid did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Do you see? He had no doubt about the facts of the resurrection. You can't deny that if you're a serious historian. But what does the resurrection prove? What does it mean? And this is what Peter is explaining. Verse 20, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And what Peter now shows us is this psalm that predicted this very thing from King David. Verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is the place of death, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness 
with your presence. I was at a funeral this week. Shockingly, at the beginning of this week, my son's teacher, class teacher, died of a brain aneurysm. We were called up and we went to the funeral and it was terribly sad. And it brought home to me the reality of what is being said here, that death has pangs, that has a grip on humanity, that holds us down and will not let us go. And the reason for it is because of our sin. The Apostle Paul says the wages of sin is death. Why does humanity die? It's the penalty for our sin. Death has a grip that holds us down. But there's one exception. Did you see verse 24? God loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 27, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That is, there was one man who was perfect, who did not sin, who did not deserve the wages of death. And death, therefore, could not hold on to Jesus. He was raised from the dead because he was sinless. And Peter explains that Psalm 16 proves that Jesus is this very one about whom uh, David spoke. The one person that death could not grip and hold down. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that is the author of the psalm, that he both died and was buried. You can go to his tomb, you can see it, we all know that, he died. So what was going on? Well, verse 30, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the jigsaw piece, of the one who would come, that he would not abandon him to Hades, leave him in the place of the dead, nor allow his flesh to see corruption. Rather, verse 32, it's this Jesus that Psalm 16 spoke of the one who fits the jigsaw, the Christ, who God raised from the dead. This Jesus, we know he was raised from the dead, but this is what it proves. He's the Christ. See, we get fixated on the fact that proving that Jesus rose from the dead, that's not the big issue. There's no doubt about that. Pincus Lapide tells us, as an historian, that happened. The scriptures show it time and again. But what does the resurrection prove? It proves that Jesus is the perfect fit. He is the living King, God's resurrected Messiah. But Peter goes on, there's another thing the Scriptures said of the Christ to come, and that is that he would be enthroned at the right hand of God to be the judge of all of God's enemies. Look with me to verse 33. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Do you see what Peter is saying? What you're seeing out here with people speaking the mighty works of God, 
with the evidence of the Spirit of God on God's people is the result of an enthroned king pouring out the gift of the Spirit on God's people. And then he quotes in verse 34, Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens. We know that. There was no evidence that King David was transported into the heavens. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, that is, God the Father said to my Lord, this other figure, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Back in chapter 1, we saw how Jesus was raised, but then spent 40 days, day in, day out, demonstrating that he was alive. And then in front of many eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses he, was, he was raised up further, ascended into heaven. And from the earthly perspective, well, it might have looked like a strange sort of act of teleportation. But here and now, Peter is explaining the significance of what that was all about. It wasn't just a bit of air travel. No, it was the enthronement at the right hand of God of his chosen Lord and King to defeat all of his enemies and save his people. So, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is that one in verse 34. He is the perfect jigsaw piece. Be certain, therefore, God says to us, be certain that God has raised Jesus as Lord and King. It's proven in the Scriptures. One of the things that has struck me as I've been studying the Bible more and more is that the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate persuasive proof that the Bible gives us over and over again is itself the Bible. Have you thought about that? It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The way that over and over and over again, written by many different authors over hundreds of years in different places of different personalities and circumstances, all cohering together like tributaries of a stream into one unified, coherent reality. And when Jesus arrives, he fits perfectly into place. So this morning, we are to be absolutely assured that Jesus is the risen, enthroned King. Why? Well, first, because it is proven beyond doubt by the Scriptures. Proven by the Scriptures, but also, secondly, proven by the Spirit. Let me read a little bit more of Psalm 110 to remind us of what Colin read for us just a moment ago. And I want to ask you, as I read it, what do you expect, what sort of character is this Lord described in Psalm 110? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And here it is, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs of the world over the wide earth. Came home yesterday afternoon, not to embarrass anybody, but found shattered glass all over the floor, scattered everywhere. Good husband, I cleaned it all up and there was a logical explanation. But this is the kind of dramatic language that is being used here. 
of what this king will do. He will shatter kings, the great and powerful rulers of the world, the president of the most powerful nation in the world if they oppose him, the most rich and important business person on the earth today will be shattered on the day of this figure's wrath. Or if you've been ten-pin bowling, it's that skittling of everybody who dares to stand up against this king when he returns. And what Peter is saying is that the end of the ages is here. The last days have come, chapter 2, verse 17. And the proof of it is that the Spirit has been poured out. And if you want to be sure that Jesus is risen and ascended, then look out and see the work of the Spirit. For that is the evidence that he's enthroned. That is the evidence that he's pouring out his Spirit to gather in his people. That is the evidence of the new age of the Spirit, the new creation breaking into the present. That is the signal that the clock is ticking down. And that one day, chapter 2, verse 20 the day of the Lord will come, that great and magnificent day. And who is that Lord, according to the Scriptures? The one who pours out the Spirit. It is Jesus. I think verse 36 is so significant. Let let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is an ultimate and authentic Pentecostal experience? Some of us have come from that church background. I did myself. When I was a teenager, I used to watch on Briz 31, I, was, I think it was called, a sort of minor flickering TV show from time to time when I should have been doing my homework. The pastor, Rodney Howard Brown, a man who would stand in a, a room of this size and say things and push people on the head, and they would laugh out in ecstatic laughter and bark like dogs and and I used to wonder do I have the spirit but the Bible tells us what the authentic Pentecostal experience is right here it's there in verse 36 the ability to say that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ the one who was crucified isn't that an amazing thing the work of the spirit is the ability to say Jesus is Lord. And in the face of opposition, I was at a CDG dinner this week, just gone, and I sat there, and he's not in this room, so I won't embarrass him, but Jack Singleton explained to me how on the first day of work, when he was introduced in his tech company, Google actually, they have excellent food apparently at lunchtime for them. He said, yeah, I'm into rock climbing and you know, I like jogging and all that sort of stuff, but I'm, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. Very ordinary. Very unimpressive, I suppose, outwardly, but impossible apart from the work of the Spirit. Why would you do that? The evidence of the Spirit poured out into someone's heart to confess that Jesus is Lord and King. I think of Ziggy Rogoff. He's a Jewish friend of mine in London, a maths PhD who was hostile to Christianity, Christians who had persecuted his people for generations. But then... God's Spirit went to work in his heart as he read the Bible. And today he's found on the streets of London stopping people to explain that Jesus is 
the Messiah. Yeshua is Lord. In the face of opposition from his people who hate it. But some are saved. The mighty work of the Spirit. Greta and others debate whether or not it's the end of the world, but they've missed the timing. The Bible tells us the end of the world has begun. We are in the last days. The Spirit has been poured out, and that is evidence. It proves that Jesus is the enthroned King. And that should be absolutely no surprise to anyone who has studied the Scriptures properly, who has listened to what God has said, because it was proven and promised in the Scriptures. And therefore, as we close, for us who belong to him, who have turned and trusted in him, a day of joy because our sins are forgiven. The Spirit is at work in us. Have you ever told anyone that you believe in Jesus? Well, if you have, that is a supernatural miracle that is impossible apart from the work of God and evidence that Jesus, the enthroned King, has poured out his Spirit into your heart. Have you ever observed somebody who has turned from being an opponent of Jesus to be somebody who tells others about him at their personal cost? Evidence that Jesus is enthroned, that we are in the last days, that we have nothing to fear if we have called out on the one who saves. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you are this morning somebody who has not yet done that, Can I say to you with the greatest seriousness and love possible, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The Scriptures prove it. The Spirit demonstrates it. And please, please do what the people do in the very next verse and turn back to Him for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of His Spirit. We pray together. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We marvel, Heavenly Father, that you have enabled us to understand this truth, that because of the death of your Son, Jesus, you have poured out your Spirit that he enthroned is capturing people for his kingdom, that we can be and have been forgiven. And we pray that that would be true of all of us, that we would each turn and trust in him. For his glory's sake, amen.